This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantine ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 593 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I am head number one, but you may know me better as the internet's Joe Patrick. And while I may be head number two, I'm also probably not number one in your hearts, but I don't care. And my name is Matt Baum. Today on the show... You care a little. Nah. We're back to the cosmic long box reviews of comics of yesteryear. And this time, the theme is ghost stories. It's part of our Halloween spooktacular. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, our Halloween spooktacular concludes... I mean, I think this is Halloween Spooktacular Part 1 because... Yeah, kind of. Just we're doing new We're going to have another show out before Halloween. Yeah, we're doing new comics next week, but we're talking yeah. scary stuff still. We'll get there. All right. This week's this week's Spooktacular concludes with a review of the new graphic novel by Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson, Dracula, motherfucker, from Image Comics. So make sure the batteries are juiced up in your PKA meter because here there be ghosts. It's review time in the ziggurat. For those of you new to the Cosmic Long Box, every other show, we like to pick a theme and review comics from across the time stream. This week, being our Halloween spooktacular, we decided to go with ghost stories. Joe Patrick, why don't you uh, dust off those creepy old chains and get us started, will you? Okay. Once again, my reviews are courtesy of my phone's voice-to-text function. So, buckle up. You do these in the dark with your eyes closed? <laughs> is that what's going on? <laughs> Look, typing whole reviews with one hand is just not something I'm prepared to do. Following the events of an adventure that is barely referenced, Boston Brand is recuperating in the mythical land of Nanda Parbat, the only place his spectral form exists in the flesh. Which is weird. I mean, it's it's a <laughs> it's a mystical home and where he was cre- where Dead Man was created. Right. I get it. It's just weird. Boston is desperate to get back to the real world one last time to at least say goodbye and experience everything that life has to offer before he is forever trapped as the ghostly agent of Ramakushna. Writer Andrew Helfer is on scripting duties here, and he sets this tale firmly in the DC universe as the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths would have just been concluding. We get an appearance by a kinder, gentler Batman pre-Dark Knight, pre-Year One. That totally well, threw me, honestly. Like, the opening scene where Boston's like, open this damn door, Batman! And Batman's like, all right, man, but I'm doing this under protest. Like, Batman, we, open my closet no, and fetch like, my outfit. Like, the Batman I know would punch you in the face if you did that. Yes, no, this is a very, this is very much a late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Super friend. Cheerier Justice League of America this Batman. This is a super friend Batman. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, he's still Batman. Boston's brother Cleveland serves as his physical stand-in, but his reappearance convinces the League of Assassins that they failed in their attempt on Boston's life. And so when Cleveland pays the ultimate price, 
Boston refuses to accept the outcome with disastrous results. It's gross. I can't stop laughing because like what kind of parents name their kids? Boston, Boston and Cleveland. Cleveland. It's this true. starts on Dallas and our daughter, Fort Worth. You know, <laughs> come on. Helfer's haunting story is great fun. Revisiting several lesser known parts of the DC universe. But the real draw is the art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who literally wrote the book on how DC's icons should be drawn. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez created the DC Comics Style Guide, which has served as the, um, I guess, handbook. Style Guide? <laughs> it's a style guide, yeah. yeah I was uh, it say, is it the handbook the for how DC's characters <laughs> should be drawn and used, not only in the comics, but in advertising and in other types of media for the last, like, 35 years. Yeah. This is a beautiful comic book illustrated by a master. Dead Man number one is a great primer on a character that does not get as much love in DC Comics as he deserves. Uh, this may not all count as continuity anymore because who knows what happened to Dead Man after this. Yeah. But I'm still Hard giving know. it a huge buy it. I really loved it. Okay. It, it's a huge buy it and it's a lot of fun. And the art is stunning. Jose Garcia Lopez is one of those names that should be way more famous than he is. It, it's just beautiful. Um, on the ranks of a ghost story, I'm going to say pretty weak. <laughs> not really a ghost story. Well, it's but not about being haunted. A fun a dead man story. is a ghost. Yeah, but I thought maybe there would be a spooky dead man story he would pick or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he gets, he gets spookier later on when they do like the Kelly Jones later, version and definitely. he's all like skin and bones. Yeah, that's guy. I thought you were going there, but you well, know, I mean, uh, but I could not pass up a comic drawn by Jose Luis. Fair Garcia enough. Lopez. I'm giving it a Couldn't buy it. Good comic book story. Not a very strong ghost story. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I thought at the end it got pretty chilling. Eh, you know, <laughs> crawls his way out of the grave. It's fine, Come on, man. My review is of. Ghosts, number 95 from DC, 1981. There was a bunch of different people that worked on the book. None of them are famous. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Ghosts was a spooky anthology book that usually featured three main stories and a couple of humorous one-page features. Towards the end, they started leading in with these single-page, like, real-life stories that came basically from Ripley's Believe It or Not books about ghosts and like this one led off with a bunch of kids meeting a ghost of a person they didn't know was dead oh so you know it's, <laughs> it's fun by this point in the series sales were definitely declining on these horror anthologies so they introduced dr 13 the ghost breaker as the first reoccurring character who appeared way back in star spangled comics number 122 back in 1952 it wasn't quite enough to save the series as it was canceled a little less than a year later. But, you know, Ghost was definitely a better horror comic than anything Marvel was putting out at the time. But it still played it very safe with the creepy tales that it told. Doctor 13 also didn't exactly set the comic world on fire and the series would be canceled less than a year later. But 
It's a fun title with some clever twists. I, Joe and I talked about it a little bit before we started recording. We both really like the idea of Dr. 13, but like he even makes a comment in here about like, well, the only person who's talented enough to fool me is that Dr. Occult, but I just haven't figured out how he's doing it yet. No, you live in the DC universe. There's no way you are a complete skeptic and you met Dr. Occult of all people, and you thought he was faking it. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> it's one thing if someone is bending spoons with their mind, but Dr. Occult is one of the most powerful sorcerers in the DCU. So maybe they should have reworked Dr. 13 a little bit here and he would have worked better. Unfortunately, the pre-comics code horror from companies like EC just did a better job without the shackles of editorial and parental and government concern. So I can only give this a skim it. It's fun. And there's some very tales of the crypty stuff going on here, but it's just too watered down to be anything real cool. Yeah, uh, I mean... It's it's fun as an artifact of its time. It's not good. Mm -mm. Uh, and so I'm giving it a skim it out of novelty, not out of quality. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the only name out of the dozen people that worked on this book is Paul Kupperberg, who was a pretty uh, regular DC guy. Yeah. But definitely not like a huge name that people would like really remember unless they were a hardcore fan. Oh, we should mention um, there is a straight up like backhanded Jack Kirby joke in this where there's an actress named like Donna Kirby or something like that. And she's like sh holding up a contract and she was like, you really think I'm going to honor this BS contract that you made a sign to stay here? And they're like, that's right, Kirby, you signed the contract. So you're doing the work. <laughs> Like what? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a skim. It's 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 not a great comic, but at, at just like as something from its time to be like, oh, look at what DC was trying to do. Yeah, uh, when they did not have the guts or the ability to do anything actually scary. Right, and they, they could have just reworked this into a really compelling, cool Doctor Thirteen comic where he goes and fights ghosts and stuff. But like. They weren't even clever enough to figure that one out. They just wanted him to be a skeptic, yeah, no, no, I guess. No. <laughs> so. Next up for me is The Spectre, number one from DC Comics. We're all this over from DC. This is crazy. I know. Uh, this is from 1992. Uh, there was a Spectre comic series in the late 80s. I have never read it. Uh, but I know that Bart Sears did a bunch of covers for it, a young Bart Sears, but I've never actually looked at them. This, though, is by writer and uh, writer John Ostrander and artist Tom Mandrake as they revive the classic Golden Age Spirit of Vengeance for a new series from the early 90s. Jim Corrigan is a ghost searching for the truth about his own murder from elderly patients on the verge of death. He gets more than he bargained for when he visits the soul of Louis Snipe, the snitch that caused his murder. Mandrake's art uh, can be suited for normal superhero tales, and he's done many of them. He drew runs on Batman. He drew Martian Manhunter. Uh, he's done some JLA stuff. But when he really wants it to be, it can be terrifyingly haunting. Oh, yeah. Ostrander's Spectre is at its best when he is dealing ironic and terrible punishment to the wicked. 
this was the start of a legendary run for this character that deserves to be standing next to others like Starman, Hitman, Preacher, and other classics from that time period. The Ostrander Mandrake Spectre is wonderful from beginning to end. To me, this is the definitive take on the character. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Yeah, this was like before this, and I don't know much about the Spectre before this, but from what I understand, he was kind of treated as a sort of like almost cosmic character. Uh, so I think it was definitely Ostrander that came up with the idea that the Spectre is literally God's spirit of vengeance. Right. Okay. That's uh, what he I. He is a heavenly agent. I want to say that he uh, took over the mantle from Eclipso. I think Eclipso was the first spirit of vengeance. Is that right? And he went rogue. I didn't know that. Really? I, I, this was all Ostrander uh, because uh, not too far after this, there was that Eclipso crossover in all the DC annuals and then he got his own book. So Eclipso was pretty big in the early 90s. Okay. All right. But yeah, this you remember was that like, comics had the plastic diamond on the front. Oh yeah, definitely. So like this was the first time the Spectre really got creepy though. Um, well, I definitely remember reading stories before this where the Spectre was like dealing some pretty gross punishments to some dudes. I just don't think they ascribed any sort of heavenly aspect to it. Okay. He was just more like an instrument of justice. Fair enough. I never read this, but I'm aware of this series and I remember seeing Ah, it. So Eclipso, Eclipso was, uh, the incarnation of the wrath of God and the angel of vengeance, and he turned evil and was replaced by the specter. Didn't Eclipso end up being something else, though, later on, like after Final Night, maybe? Did they that change? I thought Eclipso was something completely different, but I don't know. I, we don't need to go into it now. This book is amazing. We should have Jason Sachs do a who the hell is this guy about the <laughs> We <Eclipso>. should. <laughs> this For no reason whatsoever. Super great, super creepy. Mandrake's art is so awesome, and it takes... I mean, what is basically the golden age specter? They really don't change his costume much and makes no. him look super menacing and terrifying. And this is when they really got into this whole like psychological aspect of the character. And like you said, the, the vengeance, the, the spirit of vengeance, basically he was kind of like DC's yeah. ghostwriter, if you will, but kind even of. way more powerful and man, I, after reading this, I want to go back and read this entire series. It's wacky as hell. Like he summons like guns at one point and like to shoot gangsters. Like, and, like essentially, <laughs> he can bend reality. Like he right. he can. I mean, he's a goat. He's a spirit. He's he's got divine powers. He can kind of he's kind of alter reality to yeah. his whim. He's kind of limitlessly powered, but he works for a power higher than him and doesn't seem to fully understand it yet. Regardless, huge buy for me. This was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I really liked it. Yeah. My next review is Swamp Thing, number 45 from DC, 1986. It was written by Alan Moore with art by Stan Wooch and Alfredo Alcala. This was the first issue of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing that I read as a kid. So I wanted to revisit this. The story is called Ghost Dance. Back in the Wild West, the Cambridge family created a rifle called the Cambridge repeater. It was a cheaper version of the Winchester repeater in the DC universe. Basically the gun was used in countless murders, Indians, slaves, 
animals. <laughs> like the, the, it was basically the gun that won the West. And the daughter of the Cambridge family would be haunted by all the victims of rifle ever took. She asked the ghosts of the murdered how her family can be forgiven, and the ghost told her the sounds of the hammers must never stop. So she took them very literally, and she built this massive house that barely makes any sense to host the spirits of all those murdered by the Cambridge repeater. And this is based off the true story of the Winchester Mansion which really exists. The one of the, I can't remember who exactly, but one of the Winchester heirs freaked out and thought she was being visited by everyone killed by the Winchester rifle. And she built this crazy house. The story in the story, Moore sends two young couples into the now dilapidated house where they meet the angry victims of the Cambridge rifle who still blindly wander the house seeking revenge on the living. The story is chilling and probably one of the best comic ghost stories I've read. The Swamp Thing is called there by the angry dead as well and helps to exercise the house. But as it would turn out, the curse of the Cambridge family isn't so easily defeated. I'm giving this a huge buy it. While this is not like the really famous Toddlebine and more stuff where the art got really, really good, I will say Stan Wooch is great on this sort of like creepy, very easy feeling art. The ghost. That's going to be Alcala. That's going to be Alfredo Alcala. He was the sort of inker. Yeah. Or like if you got it, he he's like your Bill Sienkiewicz or your Klaus Jansen. If you totally. get that guy to ink your stuff, it's going to look different. Yeah. And man, it's just a creepy looking book. It, the ghosts are super creepy. There's a wonderful scene where a guy bumps into like an Indian brave that's like looking out the window. And he's talking about how the moonlight is shining through the hole in his stomach. And like, oh, oh, oh it's great. I loved it. So this reminded me uh, of the Hitman story by Garth Ennis, where uh, there's that demon, the um, the Mauser, right. who is like he's like five Nazi, uh, he's like five Nazi generals. Oh yeah, <laughs> merged into one body, and he's like he's like the demon of assassins or whatever, and um he is going after something called the ace of Winchesters, which was a, a Winchester rifle forged during the old West to kill demons. Right. And I would be stunned if Garth Ennis was not directly inspired by this swamp thing story. Uh, maybe, but I think that story was more related to um, an old movie called Winchester 76, which was about a special gun that was made for like, that was made for the guy that's the fastest gun in the West and everyone else was trying to kill him to get that gun. So, well, I mean, maybe, but you know, there have been lots of stories like that. Uh, supernatural did it with the, the, the cult. Yeah. Uh, the cult that kills demons with special bullets, totally, you know, it's, totally. it's, it's a, it's a fun trope in like supernatural stories. Um, but yeah, this is amazing. Uh, just, an, uh, obviously it's just another wonderful issue in a runaful, in a wonderful run by Alan Moore. It's a huge buy it. So good. My next review is of Hellstorm number six from Marvel 1993. Not Hellstrom. 
But Hellstorm. I know it's a constant battle to not say Hellstrom <laughs> when I mean Hellstorm. <laughs> but if you go back and look now that we have this TV series, it seems like Marvel like they changed everything. They washed it all. It's all Hellstrom. Now. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a young girl, a probable victim of abuse, is found murdered. So naturally, the family's priest comes to the son of Satan to help solve the crime. Well, but that's what he was doing at the time. That that was his job. He didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, but like that was kind of his job. Like he was like supernatural detective guy. Yeah, sure. But I mean, you are a devout Catholic priest and you're the daughter of two of your parishioners is murdered. Son of Satan. Who do you go to to solve the crime? He, he can't help who he is. He was mad at dad, too. OK, <laughs> and come on. I mean, I, I guess to be fair, they are being haunted. Yeah. So there's that. This was a somewhat predictable mystery from writer Rafael uh, Nieves, who I had never heard of before. I recognize that name, though. Uh, it spends most of its time showing how evil Damien Hellstrom is compared to the normal people he deals with. Uh, the art, though, by a young Leonardo Manco is incredible. You could tell right from the start that he was destined to be a master of gritty horror comics. When I said that into my phone, it auto-corrected to greedy horror comics. I never read a greedy horror comic that I didn't love. <laughs> uh, so I definitely had to correct that. <laughs> The biggest problem with this issue is that uh, the lettering by Rick Parker is literally all over the place. Yeah. The, the placement of captions and word balloons is very difficult to follow in many places. Do you know what it reminded me of? It, it like, and it's probably around the same time too. It's like very Sandman, but not as well thought but out. It wasn't a font though. It wasn't hard to read. It was like they were placed no, that's what I mean. Like In such baffling ways. Like Sandman kind of did that as well with certain things to make things haunting and odd, but it worked there. And I feel like they were going for that same thing here, but they weren't as good at it. <laughs> you know well, what I mean, I mean? Yeah, well, this guy's, this guy's no Todd Klein. Uh, Hellstorm number six is an enjoyable story. It doesn't really break any new ground, but it's got gorgeous visuals by an up-and-coming talent. I'm going to give it a buy it. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it's definitely a relic of his time, of its time. Hellstrom is yeah. very 90s sexy. He's got like a long purple coat that's open so you can see his chest and the upside down pentagram that's etched into it and what he smashes a $5,000 statue just to prove a point about money. Right. Like they can't like he's an anti-hero and they want you to understand he is not a hero. He's an anti-hero. Like we get it. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> this is not, I was just about to say, this is not the character that I love, but it totally is. It's just it is. not as well written as the character that I fell in love with later on. I'm going to give this a buy it as well. I don't know what to make of like this character at the time, what they were going for. And I can, I'm trying to think of what they were competing with at the time. Like, would this have been, this is before spawn and all that shit, right? No, 1993, the spawn would have been going. So this would have been right around there. This, that makes perfect sense then if they were trying to get image like, image launched in 1992. Yeah. So this makes that makes perfect sense why they were going for this like gritty, evil kind of thing. I mean, now that all kind of comes into focus and they were obviously trying to get their own kind of spawn character going with Hellstrom. But it's silly and it's a product of its time, but it's not bad. And Leonardo Manco developing here, but still a badass. Buy it for yeah, me for as sure. well. My next review goes to Batman Ghosts. This was a Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special from 1995. It was written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale. 
This was the final of three Batman Halloween specials that came out 93, 94, and 95 by Loeb and Sale, and you can find them all collected in a trade paperback called Batman Haunted Night. This story saw Batman visited by three ghosts on Halloween Eve in an obvious homage to A Christmas Carol. Bruce is visited by three spirits that look like his father, Poison Ivy, the Joker, and then finally a Batman skeleton to remind Bruce he's not just supposed to be Batman, but he needs to keep the Wayne name alive in Gotham as well. I loved all of this Bat team's creative work, but this was some of their first Bat work together. Sale wasn't quite as loose and impressionistic with his art yet, but still, this was beautifully illustrated, and it was way more 90s action-packed than I remember. Like, I went back to revisit this with the idea that it was going to look a lot more like the Long Halloween and uh, Dark Victory and whatnot. I forgot that Sale was... I mean, he had a lot of style to his art, but he was still straight ahead back then for the most part. He was just kind of drawn action-packed house-style Batman, if you will. Loeb's story is a little cheesy, but it gets a job done, and it inserts itself nicely in Bat history, explaining why Bruce creates the Wayne Foundation and why he hires Lucius Fox. This was a lot of fun, and I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, I love this. I love this uh, one-shot. I found this trade in a Walden books at the mall of the bluffs when I was in high school. (laughs) Uh, No, I take that back. It was at, it was post high school because long Halloween had already came out, but I had not read it. Uh, And so I found this trade of their pre long Halloween work and I snapped it up and immediately became obsessed. Uh, I love this team on Batman and this to me, uh, like long Halloween is obviously like the pinnacle. Oh yeah. But I loved all of these one shots and this story is wonderful. It's, it, it's an odd, uh, fun mashup between a Halloween story and a Christmas story. Totally. And, uh, yeah, it's a huge buy it for That's- me. If you have not read, uh, any, uh, pre long Halloween low and sale team up books, Definitely give this a read. Absolutely. I, I'm, this made me miss Legends of the Dark Knight so much. That book was yeah. so much fun. That's why I bought it back in the day, because I loved Legends of the Dark Knight. It was just yeah. this bat book where different creative teams came on, told a weird, wacky bat story that barely fit into continuity, <laughs> if it did at all. But it didn't matter. Yeah. It was Legends of the Dark Knight, and that's what that book was for. And I wish they would just hold on to that now and do things like death metal. If you want to do that, this would be a perfect place to do something like that. Yeah. Legends of the dark Knight kind of, it took place in throughout different periods of Batman's history. So I think they all counted, you know, if you're worried about that sort of thing, sure, sure. but they weren't all like, and now Batman legends of the dark Knight takes on cataclysm, (laughs) you know, or whatever. Although there were like, Definitely. They probably did get roped into they it. They did. They did get roped into some events and stuff like that. So. <laughs> but that wasn't its like original mandate. No, it was they no. were telling their own kind of standalone Batman yeah, stories. It was and an this untold was of tales of Batman, is what it was. Yeah. And man. Love it. Yes, tales. perfect. Yes, untold tales of Batman. Uh my final review goes to Rourke. That's O R R O R K colon the Ghosts from Europe Comics 2017. A man with the ability to talk to ghosts who tell him where to find missing people loses his gift when the ghosts abandon him 
after he helps a young woman search for her husband. Uh, it was a European digital only release that we just would not have ever heard of. Sure. And so I thought, hey, why not? Anxious to get his gift back, this man hires Rourke, who is a paranormal investigator with his own special abilities to help him find the ghosts again. Uh, the duo teams up with an unlikely adversary slash ally who helps them finally learn the true nature of the spirits that are haunting them all. This is by German writer and artist Andreas. One name only, like Cher. Or Meatloaf. He is a phenomenal talent. His art is incredible. Uh, the thin line designs give extraordinary detail to every page and panel. The colors by Isa Cochet bring Andreas's line work to life. This comic book is legit beautiful. Unfortunately, I did find the plot very difficult to follow. And I don't know if that's because it was translated from German or what. I think there were some problems there. I, uh, I feel the, like that the storytelling is kind of obtuse. It's a bit unclear what's really happening between all of the story threads of the three characters until it all comes together at the very, very end. Uh, I do assume that this is not the first appearance of the character of Rourke, uh, but there is no hint given to his history or any past adventures. And this was the only Rourke issue listed on the Europe comics website. Also, I did think it felt a little overlong as a single issue that was more than 50 pages. Uh, it could have been split. I thought into a couple of more easily digestible issues, like a two issue mini or something, but Hey, Europeans, man, they do their own thing. I have a feeling maybe it was, and this is how we got it in the States. Still Rourke colon the ghosts, like I said, is a beautiful comic book. It's an interesting digital only European tale that I otherwise would never have found if it wasn't for this week's theme. I'm giving it a strong skim it. Uh, it. It's getting a skim it mainly because I just had a really hard time following the plot. If I was judging it on the art alone, though, the art, the art is gorgeous. The art is fantastic. It, it's absolutely fantastic. And I think you're probably right. I think this has some issues with translation and I mean, who knows? I don't know how much money there is in translating comics for for digital formats. So maybe somebody just kind of like, sure, ran it through the Google Translate, printed it and sent it out because some of it definitely got a little weird in the storytelling. I'm going to mark that up to translation. I'm giving it a skim it as well. It was a little too long. I do have a feeling this probably came out in some type of different format and we got an English version that was just all crushed together like this. Because, I don't know, it was weird, it was a little too long, it was hard to follow. The art was amazing. That's the only reason I'm giving him a skim it. Because the art was great. Uh, yeah, the, this Rourke character has been around forever. I had a feeling. Uh, and so it was continued in French and Dutch editions of Tintin Magazine. It was later translated by a couple of dudes. And actually, it was published in America in black and white in a Dark Horse uh, anthology comic called Cheval Noir which I've heard of, but never read. Another fun fact that I did not realize when I read it, Rourke is a series of eight graphic novels by German comic author Andreas that started coming out in 1978. Yeah, I had a feeling. By the they way, they were originally serialized in Tintin magazine. Okay, there we go. My final review is of Hellboy, the third wish, number one from Dark Horse, 2002. 
The story and art were both by Mike Magnola. I believe this is the final time Magnola would do both story and art on Hellboy. For quite some time. He wrote some stuff after this, drew some stuff after this, but started working with Golden on the scripts and Duncan Scott for- Scott Alley. Scott Alley. Uh, Duncan Fregredo would come in and do a bunch of art. Regardless, in the wake of Conqueror Worm, Hellboy leaves the BPRD after the death of his golem buddy, Roger. He finds himself drawn to Africa, where he meets the ghost of a long-dead witch doctor who has him commune with the spirits of lions, and then he's sent to the ocean, where he's tricked by three cursed mermaid sisters and delivered to a giant sea creature, the Bogroosh. I forgot how weird this chapter of Hellboy was. Not only was Hellboy leaving the BPRD to walk the earth on a psychedelic spiritual quest. And he may or may not have been dead the whole time. (laughs) Magnola's art was also changing. It was becoming even more stripped down and minimalist. And I remember not loving this really strange two-part story when I first read it, but I read both chapters this week and loved it. I think it fits in very, very well to the larger character arc that we traveled with that ends in Hellboy and Hell, which I also just reread not too long ago and completely loved. No one fills a comic with more weird occult imagery and storytelling than Mike Mignola on Hellboy, and he does it with very little dialogue. He's so talented in his deceptively simple, minimal panels where... Hellboy is standing in front of a group of ghostly lions that are whispering things to him. And like, oh, it's just creepy and wonderful. I love Hellboy so much. And I feel like this is where Mike McNola really took a turning point with the character and said, we're going to go a different direction. He's not a superhero. That's not what I'm doing. I'm doing something else. And it's so much more interesting. I'm giving this a buy it. What else is there to say? You can't really go wrong with this. Uh, Mike Magnola, he's a master. A lot of Hellboy, Hellboy fans turned on the series at this point and were just like, this isn't what I want. Get out of town. I want Hellboy no. with the BPRD, busting ghosts, investigating no. stuff, fighting monsters. You know, Hellboy and- does his own thing. He he Hellboy sets his own destiny. Well, but there was a, like a much larger story he was trying to tell. And this was right. where it went from there. And man, I love it. Well, and then everything that came after this with, after he left the uh, BPRD, when they got into that stuff that Duncan Fergredo drew with um, uh, darkness falls and all that stuff, that all directly led to the actual conclusion of the BPRD universe. No, that's true. But also a lot of that was historical as well. So it took place like previously in time, flashed forward to things where Hellboy wasn't there anymore and stuff like that. I mean, this is amazing. I, I love it. I love Hellboy. I love Mike Mignola. Huge by it. Uh, just to answer your earlier question, uh, Mignola's return as solo writer and artist to the character was Hellboy in Hell. Okay. In December 2012. That's what I thought. So it would be a decade. Yeah, it would be a long time. Yeah. All right, Matt. So which book wins? What is your book of the week? Uh, It's got to be Swamp Thing. Alan Moore's Swamp Thing did such a wonderful job. Just sort of... there There was like so much Marvel stuff that was superhero horror, you know, or superhero scary. And Alan Moore sort of took that idea and turned it on its head and made the Swamp Thing the main character 
in what was essentially a horror anthology, like telling a lot of different horror storylines. There were vampires, there were ghosts, there were werewolves, there were all manner of shit in the Swamp Thing world. And he was so good at taking a, a larger story, like the idea behind the Winchester Mansion and stuff, and crushing it into one issue like this. That is legit scary. I love Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And if you've never read it, there's an absolute edition coming out the week of October 27th. And if you have not read them, oh my God, they are I can't, wonderful. I can't handle those absolutes, man. They're uh, too big. Oh, I love them. I love them. <laughs> They're too big. Just give me some nice, like, deluxe hardcovers. You know, not the huge ones. Nah. Like the, like the Jack Kirby-sized uh, ones. I love the big dog ones. Oh, I love them. <laughs> no. Uh you know, I, I really wanted to give it to either uh, the Spectre or uh, Legends of the Dark Knight, but I have read both of those a million times. So I'm going to give it to Swamp Thing because I had never read it before. You've never read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing? Are you serious? Uh, I've read bits and pieces of it, but never all the way through. Oh, wow. It is. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. One of my favorite comics of all time. One of the greatest runs of comics of all time too and the reason I love the Swamp Thing as much as I do today that does it for reviews this week and it's the sound of a vampire being run over by a steamroller in the pages of Ghosts number 95 I don't necessarily think that's the kind of sound it would make but the artist did so there you go and this onomatopoeia of the week comes courtesy from me, because I thought it was ridiculous. If you want to submit Nanamanapia of the Week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts or send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com, or better yet, you can call us and you can make the noise like I just did. Just be sure you tell us where it came from and we'll play it on the show. That's it for reviews, and now it's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we've busted out our official Defiant Comics Ouija board for our annual seance with Forgotten Heroes from Jim Shooter's failed imprint. Matt, while I try to contact Charlemagne, the champion of life, why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read pick for next week? Man, we're going to have to do a Defiant Cosmic Long Box, aren't we? <laughs> we just no, I don't even oh, think there man. are eight different Defiant oh, Comics. Oh, I guarantee there is. We're, we may have to do it. That could be fun. My pick for next week is Batman 101 from DC. It's written by James Tinney and the Four with art by Guillaume March, who I love. 32 pages for $3.99. Matt, this is the end of the Joker War. Well, why are you picking this one? Here's your solicit. And I think you'll see. A new day dawns in Gotham City, and the horrific aftermath of the Joker War is only starting to unfold. How has the Joker's rampage affected the citizens of the city? What legacy did the clown prince of crime leave? And how will it hit the Dark Knight? Here's the good part. And why does Cole Cash, aka Grifter, now work for Lucius Fox? What the fuck is going on with this, DC? First, Why are they? What are they doing? You took Wildstorm out of the DC universe. Now you're gently throwing some of it back in. You can't keep doing this. And I have to see what it's about. Look, I trust James Tinian, and I like his Batman. He's doing a I good don't. job. He's he's doing a perfectly good job on Batman. I need to know what the hell is going on here. And we're going to discuss this more on Saturday. And I want to hear your thoughts and feelings as well. But I, you can't 
keep teasing me with the Wildstorm universe and then pulling it away and then putting it back and then pulling it away. Stop it. Just stop it's it. It's funny <laughs> because they made such a big deal about their upcoming plans to reprint uh, the original Gen 13 stories in trade paperback. Yeah. For like the first time in 20 years. Yeah. And then they fucking canceled it. So like they delayed it indefinitely. Like, why? Those books are made already. And now we're getting Grifter. And I just, I, I just read something, and I can't for the life of me remember what. It was probably some death metal bullshit where a bunch of DC heroes were on the carrier, like, rescuing people from throughout the bleed. Or I, like, Come on. Stop it. Come stop on. It. Stop it. Stop it. Stop <laughs> yeah. it. Stop it. As I am fond of doing, you would say that you've chosen this out of morbid curiosity. Yeah, not I've got, I just have to see what the hell's going on. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I, I gotcha. have to. I don't have any choice. And they know what they're doing. They've got me right where they want me. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. My pick for next week is The Scumbag, number one from Image Comics, written by Rick Remender, with art by Louis LaRosa and Moreno Denisio. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. Jazz Apple Armageddon, part one. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the fate of the world rests in the hands of the worst person on it. It's a new ongoing series from the writer of Deadly Class. Rick Remender launches an all-new comedy espionage series, The Scumbag. The story of Ernie Ray Clementine. That is a hillbilly name if I've ever oh, heard yeah. one. Oh, yeah. A profane, illiterate, drug-addicted biker with a fifth-grade education. He's the only thing standing between us and total Armageddon because this dummy accidentally received a power-imbuing serum, making him the world's most powerful super spy. I couldn't even get through the solicit without deciding immediately it was my pick. I was like, oh, yes, I need to see this. Um, look, Anytime there's a new property from Rick Remender, it deserves attention. Yeah, it's Rick Remender, period. D yeah, like he's exactly. one of those names. Um, Louis LaRosa is great. Like, this was a no brainer for me. I've heard some early buzz from people that read a preview of it. Uh, and it's, I think it's going to be the sort of book that you either love or hate. Um, oh, yeah. I'm hoping that I love it. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's most Rick Remender books. Like he has his fans that love what he does. And then other people are like, I can't read that. It's too stressful. It's too gross. It's too whatever. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think I think it's more of like a um, uh, appealing to the lowest common denominator situation. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, I, I love Rick Remender. And I think a good question of the week would be like creators whose name that you will just throw money at that you don't care. Like it's, there's a very short list for me. At least try like, yeah. like there are Rick Remender books that I stopped. Like I don't read low. I didn't read low. I fell behind on deadly class, but I definitely low is wonderful. And deadly tried class them all is amazing. from the start without question. Absolutely amazing. He's definitely one of those names though. If he's on a book, I'm in the THN trade of the week goes to Hellstrom Prince of lies, a trade paperback from Marvel Comics. It's written by Raphael Nieves and Lynn Kaminsky with art by Michael Blair, Leonardo Manco, and various 264 pages for $24.99. Here's your solicit. The son of Satan is back and there's hell to pay. Damien Hellstrom has long struggled with his nature and his evil parentage. He's been an adventurer, a hero, and a defender, even a husband. To Patsy Hellcat Walker. That's right. I forgot that happened. <laughs> but that was years ago. Now, 
Storm clouds gather as Hellstrom walks amongst the mortal men once more, for his new path is one of death and damnation. Unholy threats are on the rise, and the cynical, embittered Hellstrom is the only one who can combat them. If he can survive, the many tricks his father's kingdom has in store. Hellstrom encounters Gabriel the Devil Hunter, Doctor Strange, the Gargoyle, and more as he battles demonic doppelgangers, murderous mortals, faith healers, and damned souls. But what will happen when Hellstrom goes to hell? This is collecting Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, number one through 11 from back in the day. We just reviewed one of those, as a yeah. matter of fact. Now, to be fair, his name is Damien Hellstrom. It is. It is. But they have retroactively changed the name of this book to Hellstrom to match the upcoming TV show. I'm surprised it doesn't have just one L. Now, let's just real quick. Back in the day when they were putting together a Hellstrom book, which is his name, and they decided to call it Hellstorm. I mean, come on, guys. Maybe we should have thought about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to say that for a while there, like people were calling him that, but maybe not. Um, I don't think it's so. like, I don't it's like being, that. it's like being a, a guy named Basil Elks getting super cap powers and then becoming a super villain called the Basilisk. Okay. I don't know. If you I, know, it's I'm like my name is Damien Hellstrom. Yeah. My code name shall be Hellstorm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, this was also like back in the day where like, yeah, my character. Yeah. It's Satan's kid. And he's got a pentagram on his chest. Eat that parents. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Love it. Uh, you know, I did not know this until I was looking it up, but uh, Damien Hellstrom, the son of Satan, his first appearance is in Ghost Rider number one. I, didn't, I knew it was Ghost like, Rider. I didn't realize it was number one. Wow. I believe so. Yeah. Ghost Rider number one. Wow. The uh, Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider. Okay, then. Of course, we want to hear about what you're reading next week and your favorite Jim Shooter creations. But don't forget to add these comics to your pull list so you can play along and do your local comic shop a favor, too. Time to crack open and review a whole graphic novel for our take a look. It's in a book segment. And since we're celebrating Halloween, we're reviewing Dracula, motherfucker, by Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson. Joe, why don't you read us that creepy solicit? I tell you what, man, I almost didn't make it through this one. It was a real long, arduous book to read. I think I read this in like 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Here's your solicit. Vienna, 1889. Dracula's brides nail him to the bottom of his coffin. Los Angeles, 1974. An aging starlet decides to raise the stakes. Crime scene photographer Quincy Harker is the only man who knows it happened. But will anyone believe him before he gets his own chalk outline? And are Dracula's three brides there to help him? Dot, dot, dot. Or use him as bait? I think that's enough. I yeah, don't read, we don't need to I don't read, read the pulpy pulse pounding graphic novel style. So one of the things that Alex DeCampi is really good at is sort of this grindhouse kind of theater stuff and yeah. taking a horror story like Dracula and setting it not only in 1974, but setting it in LA 1974 is ballsy because you don't think about Dracula when you do that. One of the things that she talks about in the back matter is how white dominated this kind of storytelling is and it's always this like 
Hammer films type Christopher Lee, a bunch of British stage actors. You know, Transylvania is still very British for some reason, but everybody's white and it's, you know, creepy, rainy, old, you know, European. This totally flips that on its head and gives us a character, Quincy Harker, who is obviously a throwback to the Harker character from the original Dracula story. Yeah. Uh, I can't say her name, Mina, Mina Harker. Well, uh, she was Mina, Mina Murray. Uh, well, she, Harker was the guy. Oh, she married into the family. That's right. Yeah. Um, but Quincy Harker is a character in Dracula. Right. Here, Quincy Harker is a black man and he's a photographer yeah. and he's sort of like, sort of like Jake Gyllenhaal's Nightcrawler film. He shows up at crime scenes. He knows all the cops. They let him in. He photographs bodies and he gives these gnarly pictures to his news editor. Well, he's starting to find these murdered victims that have obviously been sucked on, if you will, by vampires. And as it turns out, he runs headlong into a conflict between Dracula's brides, one bride that doesn't want to be controlled anymore, and Dracula. And the way that Erica Henderson draws Dracula as like this idea of a character. He's not like your typical good-looking white older guy that, you know, like wins over women with his looks and his, you know, sexual powers. No, he's a horrifying black, like inky sheet of eyeballs. He's unhuman. Yeah. He's not like he almost, he like, he basically does not have a corporeal form. He is. It's amazing how she draws him. And I love Alex DeCampi is talking about in the back matter, how she thought about, wanted to think about this from the aspect of the bride of someone who would marry something so evil in exchange to be beautiful forever. And like, what is that payoff? And she goes right on and like cites like people like Melania Trump and <laughs> she cites uh, yeah, right. uh, Weinstein's Harvey Weinstein's wife and stuff like that. And the trade-off and how like that, the point of view of the brides and why they would do it. And why they would want to get away, you know, eventually. And how Harker, the human, is just kind of stuck in the middle of this. If I have one complaint, it's that the story read very quickly. Almost a little too quickly. Yeah. And, and there were points where you, I didn't get lost, but I wish they would have fleshed certain things out a little more. Like, I think this could have been an amazing series. Like, you probably could have told this in a 12 to 24 comic book issue series and it would have been completely compelling i loved it the art was amazing the style of the book is incredible the colors are like bombastic and bright and psychedelic yeah which you don't normally expect for a horror comic and both creators mentioned that in the back as well like they were challenging the ideas we think about dracula and challenging the ways we think about a vampire story, a Dracula vampire story, especially should be told. I think this is incredible, but I guess I wish there was a little more to it. I wish it was a little longer and a little more fleshed out. But I mean, that's to its credit, right? Like you want more of it. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, like that's again, not to say that it was bad. I'm not saying that at all. I loved it. And I think that, you know, it's also, it's easy you know, it's a, it's a fine line to walk because at what point does it become, you know, this was 72 pages, 76 pages. 
Well, the story itself is only like 60. And with back sure. matter, it comes out to be like 76 or something like that. But Rourke, Rourke was like 52. Right. And Rourke felt like a chore at times. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I did not finish Rourke because it was such a chore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this, but this though, like I couldn't put it down. Yeah. I breezed. So it. it was beautiful. I, I think there's, uh, while I, I agree that it, it would, it would be cool to see more of the, like this idea expanded. Um, there's something to be said for, you know, dropping the mic. I agree. Telling your story, dropping the mic. I totally agree. I just think there were some narrative aspects where I got um, almost a little lost in the psychedelic aspect of the It's kind art. of abstract. Yeah, yeah. There's some abstraction going on. The way the story was being told, how Dracula was sort of overriding, not like a narrator, but almost omnipresent. And it got not, conf- yeah, it got a little confusing at some points where I was like, okay, who's telling me the story right now? And I wish they could have fleshed it out a little more just in moments like that to develop that narrative that like Dracula is more than a character. Dracula is like a fucking idea in he this almost. Idea, yeah. Oh, it's so cool. Uh, yeah, no, I, I thought this was stunning. I'll say this. Uh, normally, I glance at back matter in comics unless I find it very interesting. I actually found myself appreciating the book more after I read the back. Matter. I did too. Absolutely. That's, and that's the thing I had to read the back matter to go, okay, that's what they were going for. And it's not that it's not because I didn't like the story to begin with. Right. It's that like getting that added insight into Erica Henderson's process. Yes. And Alex DeCampi's mindset, like that stuff she talked about, um, about, you know, how she hates the idea of Dracula being handsome. Right. Because it takes away from that idea that he is basically coercing these women against their will. Well, but more than that, it takes away from the trade-off that like, look, you will be young and beautiful and powerful and rich for the rest of your life. But the trade-off is you're also evil. And like, if he's sexy and he's this good-looking dude. Oh, how terrible is that trade-off? If yeah, he's a, right. It's like, oh, they they wanted to do right. it. Right. If he's a nightmare, if he's right. a complete horrifying nightmare, that's like way more to the Harvey Weinstein type character or yeah, the Donald like Trump. They've been groomed. Where it's like you are not. It's she didn't marry this guy because he's attractive. She married him because yeah. she wants this power. And there's something inherently evil about that too. You know, uh, so Good Morning America ha- has been uh, doing this story all week about the sex cult that Allison Mack from Smallville was involved in. Yeah, uh, because the daughter of some famous 80s actress escaped from there or or like dropped a dime on them. Yeah, there were a few people that escaped. That's how they got out. Yeah. And like she didn't she didn't escape. But like after Allison Mack and the and the head cheese got arrested, She's like, oh shit, here's all the evidence. Uh, I, I found all the evidence, put those fuckers in jail. And it's sort of like that where it's like Dracula is, it, uh, is a cult. Like you were wooed by him somehow yeah. and now you're trapped. Well, the power, and you're wooed by you the power. You might think that you have the, what? You're wooed by the promise of the power. Right, right. And you might think you have that power, but it's always, 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 no matter what, about what Dracula wants. Yeah. And you will always be replaced. 
And that's what I loved about DeCampi saying, like, that's why Dracula can't be a fucking dreamboat. Right. Because that gives you an easy out. Yeah. Oh, he was so hot. What am I supposed yeah. to do? Yes, like, yeah, of course they fell for him. Look at the guy. Yeah. I, I also loved her choice, to, her reasoning behind uh, reimagining Quincy Harker as a black man because uh, Quincy Harker is the blackest name yeah. from a white prose novel since Percy Jackson. Yeah, she's like, it's the most accidentally black sounding name since yeah, Percy, until Jackson. Percy Jackson. <laughs> it's like, and I had like, I, I have seen the trailers for those stupid Percy Jackson kids movies right. a thousand times. And I never once thought, oh shit, he sounds like a Samuel right. Jackson. Percy Jackson <laughs> sounds like a fucking kick ass, like Duke recruit that like can a, hit a three from anywhere on the floor. You know? he, yeah, he, or he could be like a black like, character. Yeah, it does not sound like a white kid you know, from yeah. Connecticut or wherever, you know? Like, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, this book was great. Uh, this book was great. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Like if, if the biggest complaint you can level against it is that you wish there were more of it. That is a plus in my book. No, it's, and it's a buy it from me. I just think in my opinion, I wish there were some things they could have fleshed out a little more. I would have liked more of it. And that's my only complaint. Now I will say this, no spoilers. It does kind of end on a note that they could do more if they wanted. Yeah, most definitely. And I hope they do. I definitely hope me they too. do. This was very cool. Me too. Excelsior! That is it for a very spooky THN 593. Next week, it's time for Nerd TV, where we will be discussing Marvel's TV's first official, long-awaited TV series, Hellstrom. And we're back. It's like Marvel's fourth official (laughs) TV series. And we're back to reviewing new comics. Until then, Joe Patrick. Give these nerds a new question of the week. This week's question was submitted by David Robbins during our last cover to cover episode. What's been your comfort media during these trying times? What have you been reading or watching for the first time, catching up on or rewatching? I love it. I love it too. Uh, Please guys, we are in need of question of the week suggestions. So keep those coming to the forums or to our email or to Twitter or wherever you know where to find us cover to cover is back every Saturday at 1030 live on our Facebook page and it is the new home so call us at 402-819-4894 or shoot an mp3 of your answer to twoheadednerd at gmail.com and you could be internet famous Uh, please do though remember to keep it under two minutes this is a rule we refuse to enforce uh, but keep it in the back of your mind (laughs) We got to share the air with the other nerds that are trying to get in. If you're new to the show and you want to push a needle in your eye every time you hear me say the term fair enough, I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twitternerd.com. I bring that up because somebody on Twitter talked about playing a fair enough drinking game and every time Matt Bombs says fair enough, you have to drink, but then you also have to call 911 by the end of the episode. Yeah. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like local artist, Mr. Tim Mayer. I think we've thanked him a few times now. But look, we we only have like 25 patrons, dude. And we can only we've gone through the list. I'm just saying, if we keep giving Tim thanks, he's going to hear it eventually and realize that he's still a patron and cancel that shit. So Maybe we need to keep this a little quiet. (laughs) He can afford it. 
Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to our good friend and phenomenal comics talent, Andrea Shockling, who is getting ready to pitch her comic, Subjective Line Weight, to Oni Press. Oh, nice. They came to her and they said, prep a pitch. We want to talk to you That's about it. That's kick ass. I know. Where do you, Andrea? We are rooting for you. I will buy the hell out of that when it comes out. Until next time, True Believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just criticize your subjective line weight. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Way to turn a comic all about body positivity into a fat <laughs> joke, buddy. <laughs> what, you did it. That's what retailers do. <laughs>